This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. So I'm imploring you not to think outside of the box. I'm begging you to burn the whole damn thing all together. Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Biz Pod, where we release two episodes per week on Tuesday, featuring an interview with an athlete, entrepreneur, or thought leader in sports entertainment, and on Friday, featuring commentary with special guests to run down the week of Sports Biz news, events, jobs, and more. I'm your host, Nick Hayden, founder at Sports Biz Group and the program director for the Manhattan Sports Business Academy. This week, we're really excited to share this episode that we live streamed on LinkedIn originally, and now we're releasing a podcast with Darren K. Roberts, a Harvard Law School graduate turned into an NFL coach for teams like the Kansas City Chiefs, Detroit Lions, and the Cleveland Browns. Now, Darren is working at the University of Texas, Austin, where he's a founding director for the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation. Darren is an amazing public speaker, a great connector, and has a phenomenal story about how he broke into the sports industry. If you haven't already, go follow Darren on LinkedIn as he posts some of the most viral content and highly engaging. If you haven't already, go like, subscribe, give us a five-star review wherever you consume podcasts, and please stay tuned for other live streams that we're going to continue to do in the future to help bring the sports industry together. Thank you so much. Enjoy the episode. Amazing to have you, Darren. How are you doing? Great to be with you, Nick. How are things going? Things are good, man. Um, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on. Um, we are live on LinkedIn, and we can talk about a lot of things. You know, some, you know, I think networking, sports, LinkedIn content, um, just leadership. There's so much that um, that you know and that you post about and that you preach, and um, I'm really excited to uh, to dive into this. Yeah, man, I am too. Cool. So, cool. All right. Looks like it's it's going well on LinkedIn's end. So, let's kick this off. So, Darren, um, I've been following your content. It's really inspiring. You you hit the the nail on the head with a lot of these posts and have gone really viral. But can you just give us a little bit about the people that are listening now and and going to listen afterwards? Kind of who you are and, and what's your what's your story? Yeah. So I'll do a uh, I'll do a quick kind of overview from East Texas. Went to the University of Texas in '97. Uh, the goal was to be governor by age 40, um, was student body president here in my, my last year, applied to a ton of law schools, only cared about one. Um, that was Harvard Law School and didn't get accepted, didn't get rejected, uh, was waitlisted. So I uh, had to adjust. And this was one of the, the first lessons that I kind of received in being able to pivot. So worked in D.C. for Joe Lieberman for two years in the Senate applied each year to Harvard Law School. I was um, I was waitlisted four years in a row. So got in on the fourth attempt, get into law school in 04, um, 
I'm going through the motions and things are going well. And then a buddy of mine from Texas who was a a high school coach asked me to go with him to South Carolina to work the Steesburger football camp. I loved the experience, decided I wanted to be a coach and um, wrote a letter to every team in the NFL. Um, Herm Edwards, head coach of the Chiefs at the time, was my only guest. And I slept um, on a twin blow-up mattress in Arrowhead for basically six months, volunteered for the season. He hired me on full-time the next year, and so I did um, two years with the Chiefs, two years with the Detroit Lions, two years with the West Virginia Mountaineers, and last year with the Cleveland Browns. Um, my wife and I have five kids and just realized I wasn't really seeing them, so um, decided to come back to the University of Texas, started the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation. I teach classes on leadership, financial management to our um, student athletes, and um, also uh, I speak and, and do one-on-one executive coaching with um, former athletes, CEOs, executives. So, um, you know, glad to be on the, glad to be on the show. Um, really, really admire the work you're doing, Nick, and looking forward to the conversation. I appreciate that. So, so can you tell us about, you know, um, that's a great, you know, backstory. There's a lot to dive in there, just overcoming things and whatnot. But what got you into sports originally? What was the reason that kind of drew you into this? Yeah, I played high school football. Um, I never had any sort of misconceptions that I was going to play pro. That was never the goal. I grew up in a house where, you know, sports were truly extracurricular, but my, my dad said that 80% of my effort was going into uh, uh, academics. So it was really by happenstance. I wasn't looking to coach. I just happened to go with my buddy to this camp. And I think the three-day experience uh, for me was just so um, impactful. Coaching sixth graders, I had 60 sixth graders in my group. Um, just seeing like the connections that people made around football. So kids from different races, different socioeconomic status, kids from different sides of the track. Football was the one thing that brought them together, if even briefly, for a period of three days. And so, you know, Nick, for me, that was something that I wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Cool. So kind of going from, you know, sports background, hearing hear more about that, can you talk about, you know, some of the content that you're posting now on LinkedIn? And there's a lot of football and other sports ties, but from, to be honest, from what I've seen with a lot of people, specifically with sports content, you, you, you post consistently the most viral content, highest engagement. What, what do you think the reason that is, or what's your kind of approach or strategy? Yeah, Nick, I, so I made a commitment to be on LinkedIn consistently in 2017. Um, mm-hmm. Had a conversation with a good friend of mine who worked at LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. He talked about how once the video feature would be released on the platform that um, you know the platform would really favor early adopters of video and I've done video had a podcast um, did, a, did a ton of interviews before on other platforms but really made a commitment in late 2017 that uh, for me LinkedIn would be one of my top three social media platforms. So mm-hmm. for me, it's, 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 uh, the acronym is LIT. So it's LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. I spend 80% of my time on LinkedIn, and I split the remaining 20% between Instagram and Twitter. 
Um, and the reason being is that I just found that LinkedIn, unlike some of the other social media platforms, I think it's the cleanest in terms of language, quality of posts, even just the, the interface works for me. Mm-hmm. I think also that, um, you know, at no other point in the history of mankind have you been able to instantly reach someone that you want to connect with. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the, the real power of LinkedIn and the content that I see. And I'm, I'm very deliberate about sort of what comes through my feed mm-hmm. um, has been tremendous. So I try to, I'll, I'll say this, I'm going to just answer a question that um, I really scour the internet videos um, to, to find content that I think works for my platform. And I think for, for a lot of people on LinkedIn who are trying to find their voice, I would say go wide early. So try different formats, taglines, approaches. But once you find something that works, I'm a proponent of going all in and really mm-hmm. trying to build out, uh, you know, quality content that, that people find value in. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So, um, so I've been following along. Very impressive, and I kind of see the um, the content that works for you. You know, it's like this isn't about football; this is about sports. And you put a really well descriptive, you know, um, you know, commentary on that. So, it, could you kind of break that down with like, is that is that the uh, is am I correct with that? Where like that's something that's working for you, and you just rinse yeah. and repeat you know, every every day or every week. Yeah. So for me, um, I give about 60 speeches a year and, you know, some of those speeches are complacency is the enemy, Mm -hmm. um, leadership of a contact sport. And oftentimes what I'll do is I will use my speeches to test content or language that I find compelling to see if other people will. And so I gave a talk early 2018. This is not about sports. And I was speaking to a, to an investment bank. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was talking, I took them through three takeaways that were built around sports case studies, but had investment bank takeaways mm-hmm. and um, just talked to people after after my speech. And it really resonated with them. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take that tagline because I believe that, listen, we're all on various social media platforms. I want someone to be able to within those first two lines in their uh, LinkedIn um, feed to know that that's a Darren Roberts post. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I only post. This is not about sports kind of content. Sometimes I'll do some some um, other short form kind of text heavy um, if I want to talk about a topic outside of that that domain. Mm-hmm. But I I have a goal of posting at least five times a week, mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes I will go over that. But I also make a commitment. This is one. This is one pitfall that I've seen from other folks who have tried to build brands on LinkedIn. I think it's so conventional wisdom, you know, all the, the, the smart guys and gals will say to post at least one time a day or twice a day at these times. Mm-hmm. Don't post content to check the box if it's not compelling. So mm-hmm. if I think it's still week in sports and I only have four videos, I'm only going to post four times because I don't want to lose, I don't want to, I want people to read my post and to walk away from the post thinking differently, acting differently. And so if I can't tell that story from the content that I see in the form of videos, then I won't post for the sake of the algorithms. And so that's where I differ from some people. 
Um, I think it's good to have a target number, but don't sacrifice the content, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the altar of your schedule is, is what I would say. Nice. So, so pretty much what you're saying is like, don't force the content, let it, let it come to you naturally. How, how do you find inspiration, I guess, from, from that, where it seems like you, you had put really quality content. I agree with that uh, sentiment that there's no need to rush content unless it's providing really good value. But like, what are some of the ways, because, you know, I agree with you. I think the video aspect of LinkedIn is kind of changing the game. So you know, right now there's a lot of people ready to consume content, very small amount of people actually producing it. Um, and you're seeing a lot of the rewards, like that's what you're doing. But for people that like, what, what's kind of your guide to maybe, hey, this is this type of content or how do you kind of help people find that inspiration? Yeah, so, you know, my angle with this is not about sports is, I'm gonna show you a clip <clears throat> no longer than 45 seconds from some sports moment, um, any sport. And when I watch the clip, I am thinking about what are the business or life takeaways from this episode. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Gigi and Kobe on the sideline, you know, talking with each other and smiling, whether it's the Colorado Stanford basketball teams joining hands after De Silva's uh, injury um, and, and hugging and embracing, you know, I, I know that when I see content in the back of my mind, I'm asking myself, you know, what is the larger lesson here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is what, that's what people want. And I don't care if you're in real estate. I don't care if you're in venture capital. It doesn't matter if you're in education. I think that people want, they want to learn and be entertained at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so really try to craft language when you see something that fits those two categories within your sector try to coalesce a language around the content whether it's a picture or a video or a podcast episode that really seeks to do those those two things mm-hmm. um, and i would say most consistently also if this is something because a lot of people kind of talk about wanting to do more and kind of be more active on linkedin i have dedicated time slots every morning every afternoon where I'll take 30 minutes to go through videos and content that I see. And I'll watch, I may watch 50 clips in a day and only choose one. Yeah. But that's a consistent process because if, if it becomes haphazard, then as you know, you'll be inconsistent and I think you won't find the sort of reception that you want. And one thing I want to say, Nick, on this point too, is that um, don't concentrate and focus your efforts on getting your follower numbers up. These folks mm-hmm. out there, you know, th- th- here's the thing, and there are a lot of gimmicks around that, you know, hey, like two people, uh, comment, take yeah. a picture. I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that the people of my 26,000 followers, and the reason why I know this is because of the messages that I get from, from their LinkedIn requests, I'm confident that they are being attracted to the content mm-hmm. and so I feel really good about knowing who my audience is yeah I think once that strays a bit then you know you're gonna find yourself not gaining the traction that you want mm-hmm. and I think keeping that number out of your head in terms of I want to hit 20 I want to hit 2,000 followers or 5,000 just 
keep creating valuable content. Yeah. So, so it would probably be better say you have a hundred followers It's better. It's better to have a hundred followers that you know them on a first name basis. They love you rather than have, you know, 5,000 followers where they kind of sort of like you. So have that strong base. is kind of where you're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Kevin Kelly, um, wrote the, an article that I'm, I'm sure many of you have, have read. If you haven't read Google, Kevin Kelly, 100 raving fans. It's a thousand mm. raving fans. I think it's a thousand raving. Well, yeah, a thousand raving fans. Um, and it's a deep dive into. He talks about monetizing your skill set over yeah. the life of your career. Mm. I'm not looking at LinkedIn from a monetization standpoint. I'm looking at it from a you know I want to I want to get into a community of like-minded people. Mm. But the concepts hold you know concepts holds true. If you can if you can consistently create content and kind of coalesce a group it may not be a thousand and maybe 10 but if if that content is reaching that avatar and that type of individual then that just gives you a framework and a base with which to then build more and more content um and you'll have the people in your community that i think could add the most value to to the work that you're doing that's amazing so um, another great part of this live stream feature, so we have people that are tuning in and asking questions. So instead of just waiting for the end, we'll just kind of ask them right now. So uh, we have one from Ben Sterner, CEO at Leverage Agency. What are what has been the most challenging time in your life, and what do you do to overcome that? That's great, Ben. I um, been, I've had some challenges, so I've got to pick the most challenging one. I would say the four years that I spent on the wait list at Harvard Law School. So at that point in my life, I was on a very linear, if A then B, B then C type of roadmap. And I felt as if going to Harvard Law School from my personal plan was essential to me becoming the governor of Texas. Okay. And so mm -hmm. when I didn't get in, I had the grades and like I said, student body president. So I felt like I checked the boxes. But when I didn't get in, and you essentially got the same letter four years in a row, that was a dark period. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll tell you that a couple of things for me. One, I think just remembering that it's a process. Um, I think also remembering that the timing, maybe the timing wasn't right. And I, I think about the class that I did end up in was the class of 2007 some of my best friends for life. And I, I say some of the guys who will be carrying my casket were in that class. And I would not have had the chance to meet them had I been accepted, you know, four years prior. So mm -hmm. I think just remembering that, you know, life is about seasons. And a part of my, you know, one of my research areas here at the University of Texas is failure management and in particular rejection. And so being able to reframe a rejection as, you know, maybe the timing isn't right. Mm -hmm. um, what can I learn from the experience? I think trying to zoom out of the pain, you know, recognizing that it's painful, but then zooming out and taking the larger lessons and then using that to propel you forward. You know, that, that's what helped me um, during that stretch from 2001 to 2004. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, that was a good question, Ben. Um, kind of piggyback off that. So based off of like other industries, you know, obviously being in sports, do you think that the failure is a little bit different, more painful, or could, you know, is there any kind of type of comparison? You know, you're talking about looking to get into politics. What, 
how, how are those failures different or are they kind of all the same? Um, you know, one thing I say about people ask me about coaching in the NFL and, and what was it like, and I said, you know, there, there aren't many jobs where your work product is visible to the entire globe every Sunday in the fall, right? So yeah. uh, I coached defensive backs. Um, it was widely, it was publicly accessible for you to find out how I was coaching um, every single week by looking at the box score. And I think there are some jobs where maybe the scrutiny isn't as high as it is in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that there still isn't an accountability, but you know, your, your neighbor doesn't know if you screwed up the spreadsheet in, in some positions, right? Um, I think sports is also one of those places, and I, I will always have young folks hit me up and say, hey, I want to get into sports, and um, I've emailed, I filled out 50 applications online and haven't heard anything back. And I'm like, the, the first thing I say, like, this is only the beginning. So if, if you want to break into sports, the only way that I know, unless your last name is Kraft or Belichick, um, the only thing I know to do is to, you have to hustle to a different degree. So the application is a starter. You've got to find the people on LinkedIn. You've got to find folks on Twitter. You have to show up. I would draw a radius around where you live. Um, you know, drive up to stadiums, find where people are speaking. Like it has to be really an all out warfare in terms of getting that one connection into the building. Because as you know, Nick, I mean, this is a high demand uh, field and the demand is so high that there are going to be a lot of people who are disappointed each year. Mm -hmm. And the only way to feel good about the process is to be as meticulous and as thorough as possible so that you can say, look, I've tried every available means in order to get myself into the building. That's amazing. Cool. So, so we actually have another question coming in for, for all the people that are listening. Um, drop a comment or, you know, introduce yourself, network with other people that are tuning in and, and leave a comment. But another question that came up that was really good is it's three parted, but we'll, we'll take it one at a time um, from Laura Benhard. Um, she looks like a fellow podcaster as well, but, um, how did fo- football transition from a hobby to being a coach? So like, what was the moment you kind of really solidified it where you were like, all right, this isn't a dream, but you're kind of all in. Um, and then I'll, I'll ask the second question after sure. that. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Laura. So for me, the summer before my last year of law school, I worked a football camp, not because I wanted to be a coach, but because. I wanted to hang out with a high school buddy who I hadn't seen in a while. And so I worked this camp and this is one of the points I want to make is we constantly have to take a personal inventory of our feelings. So what's moving me now? Mm -hmm. Um, What's boring me right now? Right? Like constantly I think you have to take the temperature of your experiences. And for me, I could not walk away from the fact that, the three days I spent working this football camp on a whim were some of the best three days of my life. Didn't have to set my alarm clock to get up. Really enjoyed working with the young people. Um, and so for me, what I do when, when something like this happens in any kind of part of my life, the next thing I do is I go to the books. So mm-hmm. I read probably 10 coaching books in the process of two weeks. It's like an Amazon package would come in and I would just crush through it. And I thought, wow, I think this is something I want to do. Um, I reached out to Mike Leach, 
who was the, the head football coach at Texas Tech. And I said, listen, I'm a law student. You're a law grad, Pepperdine Law. Do you mind if I come and just talk with you for 30 minutes? I'll fly into Lubbock. I've got 10 questions, and that'll be it. And he, he responded. He said, hey, come out and stay for a couple of days. Um, spent two days in Lubbock talking to Leach. That turned into actually a week. I spent the entire week out there. Wow. And when I when I flew back to Boston, I said, "This is this is what I want to do." So I think, I think you find something that moves you. Step one, take the inventory, take the personal inventory. Step two, dive into the research. So I want to read everyone's account of what the coaching profession is like. And then for me, step three is find the humans who can give you the intel about the career or the position that you're looking to go into that should give you enough body of, of, of evidence to make a decision to say, I either want to pursue this or this is something that I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And uh, so the second part is kind of very similar to third. So we'll just kind of bundle them together from Laura. Um, what is your best strategy to motivate a team? So, you know, you're in the door, you got the job. Now you got to kind of win over their confidence and, and they have to trust you. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different egos, a lot of different emotions, but what, what's your, you know, your approach to motivating um, a team? Yeah. So before you can motivate a team, the number one thing that has to be done is you need to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, conversation, interaction with each team member. I think oftentimes people will walk into a building They'll throw up some Lombardi quotes. This isn't just for sports, right? I see this in the business context. And they think if they sort of say the right language, um, you know, quote Simon Sinek, that things will work out. You have to have a relationship with each player or each teammate in the building, whether it's sports, business, nonprofit, education. Once you understand where each of your team members are coming from, right, because they're all motivated by different things, that information helps to inform what sort of content you use to motivate folks. So um, I would say don't rush to go macro. The way that I view my professional career is, and we have a team here of you know three people who work with CSOI. Um, we've got 15 facilitators we work with. I get to know each one of them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Then that gives me the data that I need to craft the motivation for the entire organization. And so it can look differently based on, let me just say this, if you don't get the, if you don't connect one-on-one -on -one first, you're gonna miss the mark when you try to go macro with the motivation because mm -hmm. you're not gonna hit everyone's wavelength. Mm -hmm. So that's the starting point for me. Cool. So, so you kind of briefly mentioned it. We we talked about it a little bit earlier, but could you kind of you know talk about what you're where you're building at uh, CSLI and you know part of University of uh, you know Texas, where I think from from looking doing some research on the the camps and the speakers and and just all the initiatives you have doing you have going on there, it's really amazing. So, could you just kind of like dive a little bit more into that and, and kind of uh, what, what's looking ahead for 2020 with you guys? Yeah, so Nick, we've, um, you know, I kind of have two roles. So I'm, I'm, I head up CSLI, the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation. Yep. So here what we do is we, we develop and deploy leadership curricula for high school, collegiate, and professional athletes. So we have, we have modules built around empathy. I'll just give you some examples. Empathy, um, vulnerability, 
growth mindset, um, effective communication, digital responsibility. And so we have many modules that we can teach in a large classroom format. So I have 150 students here at the University of Texas in the spring or in a small team format. So we'll take, you know, um, eight volleyball players and do some of the same training. So we're really devoted to offering that leadership guidance and support both in person and then we've just launched um, an online video um, content that coaches are consuming around around the globe. We also wanna expose our university to people who are in the sports space who are doing it the right way, who are leading with integrity. So we've had Kevin Durant, Mia Hamm, Sean White, um, you know, that just gives you kind of a snapshot of the type of people that we want to bring into the university to host one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and then also outside of sport. So we hosted Brene Brown in October. We use a lot of her research when we're teaching athletes about the power of vulnerability and empathy. Um, and so we thought it was, it was really beneficial for, for our campus to be able to consume her content in a more personal setting. Um, we're, we're continuing to expand across the state and across the, the country. Um, you know, we, we've done rookie leadership trainings for the New York Giants. So I'm excited about the direction and, and the growth on that front. And then personally, I personally, you know, I make 58 to 60 speeches per year, uh, motivational um, in, in content. And then I do one-on-one -on -one executive coaches. So I'll work with an investment banker for three months or six month span, or um, I work with an, a football player who's transitioning from the NFL and wants to kind of get a good foundation as he leaves the game. So, um, you know, one thing I'll say is people out there, um, you have your day job, you also have something that probably stirs your emotions and, and gets you going. Make sure that you, you cultivate both. And I, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a position where, you know, I have that sort of latitude here. Amazing. And um, that, that's thanks for all that background. And just being courteous of your time, you, you mentioned how, how much more time do you have? We can maybe get yeah, into I've, I've got 10 minutes. Are good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so hey, you, you've covered a lot of ground. You're, uh, you're good at what you do, Nick. I like it. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, yeah we try to keep it jam packed with uh, Sports Biz Pod. But um, yeah, so kind of um, from, from all these people that you've interviewed and, um, you know, Sean White, uh, Kevin Durant. Um, what is kind of, I don't want to say that, you know, summarize it in a spark notes or what's something that you've seen a, a single characteristic out of all these incredible people that you've brought onto the stage and interviewed in your classes. What's something that's like very uniform amongst all of them. They're all going to be different people, but what's something that's like maybe a spark notes for each one of them or something that's mm -hmm. kind of common against uh, all of them. Yeah. Whether you're talking about Mia Hamm or Kevin Durant, Sean White, um, Ali Raisman, all of them have this discomfort with mediocrity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes beyond Instagram. So I think most people, if you ask them, hey, do you want to be mediocre? Like, no, right? And they'll, they'll post about that and they'll say that. The elite athletes whom I've been around, I think of Calvin Johnson, you know, Megatron at, at uh, Detroit, all of them, like, there is a paranoia associated with becoming above average. Mm -hmm. uh, for them, that compels them 
to do whatever it takes to ensure that they are in the best position to operate at an elite level. This is diet, this is sleep, this is getting outside coaching, this is hiring um, you know, people to work on their bodies, this is investing in equipment. Like all of them, you know, what's amazing is that most of them have the physical tools at birth to put them in the position to probably do well in sports, right? If you're Kevin Durant and you're 6'10", there's a good chance if you work, you could probably be pretty good at sports. But, uh, or if you're Calvin Johnson, you know, 6'5", 240 pounds, and can run a 4.38, you're probably going to be good in some respect in sports. But none of them rested on their initial endowments at birth. Like, they are paranoid by the notion that they could lose ground. Mm-hmm. And that compels them to work in a very maniacal fashion. That's the difference maker, right? Like, like that's, it, it, it's something that, you know, there's a level of unrest on this path to becoming great that most people, they, they, they feel that, but then the comfort of not going outside, not getting up too early, not staying up too late, not watching extra film, like that starts to kick in and people will kind of revert back to the mean. Mm-hmm. They are constantly, these elite athletes, these men and women are constantly paranoid that mm-hmm. they will lose ground and that forces them to do, to max out in terms of effort. And it's mm-hmm. unlike anything that I've ever seen. That's amazing. So um, kind of looking at you know the past decade and now we're starting a new one, mm-hmm. uh, how do you think sports has evolved, um, you know, from a leadership standpoint, like what needs to change with the next generation of like leading that next generation and kind of how do you think sports will innovate or like what, what big changes do you think will be made in the next decade? One thing that really interests me the most is the, the way in which the athlete has become a brand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the last decade has seen, the athlete's brand managed for the most part by the club Mm -hmm. through social media through investments right so um if you look at what iguodala what uh, durant and and lebron are doing no longer are they taking the blanket sponsorship deal they are negotiating negotiating equity stakes right Mm -hmm. and so it's a very interesting arc if you look at sort of the Muhammad Ali um, outspoken activist I think there's an arc that's being drawn to the current athlete in which athletes are taking agency over the influence that they have and they're, they're, they're willing to leverage that agency based on their own personal wants or beliefs and this is, this is classic Kaepernick um, this is LeBron, I can't breathe. You know, this is very fascinating to me. I think you're going to see a new type of activism um, because of athletes' sort of embracement or they're embracing their agency. I think another thing is I'm, I'm curious to see what this trend of NFL athletes retiring early, the Keekleys, the Gronkowskis, I think that you're going to start to see athletes, especially in football, say, I am going to be conservative with my base salary for four to five years, 
and then I'm going to leave the game and I'm going to leverage that capital in other ways. Um, and this is, this is a, a, a trend that I think is going to, going to only sort of increase. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how the NFL and the various leagues respond to it. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, the, the next wave is very entrepreneurial. They, they think of it as like an ownership stake. So um, I'm excited to see that too. We, we had another question come in uh, from Grant Wiley co-founder at VPO, you might know Grant, he, he played for the Vikings, um, and he, he asked a question, what are your uh, thoughts on the state of NCAA and then the blurred lines of amateurism um, and how that will, you know, adjust where, you know, the states are, you know, classifying them as, you know, professional athletes or they can get paid, kind of what's your thoughts on that, on that whole situation? Yeah, hey, Grant, great question. Um, so first, I don't agree with the blurred lines. Mm-hmm. Um you know, as an NFL coach, I tell people, if you walked in the Ford Field and watched a game or walked in the Daryl K. Royal Memorial Stadium and watched the Longhorns play, there, there is – I don't see any differences, right? The same sponsors are scrolling across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, the University of Texas generates $200 million in revenue. We're, we're number one in the country. So I don't really believe in amateurism at the college level because I've coached these kids. And these young men, excuse me, I've coached them, and they are putting as much time, if not more, into the craft of sport than their NFL, NBA, WNBA counterparts are. So I, I, I first don't believe in amateurism, um, which is why I was very excited and uh, to see what Grant with uh, Gavin Newsom with Senate Bill 206 that California was the first to sort of push the envelope and say, we need to allow athletes to monetize their name, image, and likeness. Um, And for me, I think any argument around, you know, the purity of the game, the the purity was lost a long time ago. Um, The fact that if I go to Daryl K. Royal Memorial Stadium, I'm going to see three Southwest Airlines commercials. I mean, that's gone. So commercialism is here. Um, And I really can't think of any other place in the workforce where the people who who create so much value aren't compensated to the degree in which they should be. And some will say, well, it's not fair if the quarterback gets paid more than the, the long snapper. And I say, actually, it is fair because, um, when you go into after college, whether you go to a law firm or a, a, a school, you, we will be compensated based on the value that we create. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, better lawyers get paid more, better mm-hmm. teachers get bonuses. Um, this is the way that the world is. And so I just think, if anything, it's a way to kind of introduce student athletes to an economic model that they will see after graduation. So I'm excited about uh, to see what happens in 2021 with the NCAA changes. Um, I'm not convinced that the NCAA is prepared for for what will take place mm-hmm. uh, in 2021. And I'm not sure that universities are. I mean, there are a lot of issues around taxation, regulation, um, intellectual property that, that athletes will have to sort out. But I think it's a move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see, and especially with a lot of these schools, just how much money they bring in. And and it's also it's, it's frustrating to see with a lot of student athletes that are very entrepreneurial. They're not even allowed to use their own likeness for their own businesses or ventures. So 
seeing all that shift in the upcoming years is going to tell a lot. Um, yeah, but, Nick, I, I just want to say something, Nick, on that point. I was advising a student athlete, and he had an idea for a company, was still playing a sport, and um, the logo for the company was the outline of his face. And I said, you know what, man, here's what's interesting. If you were a non-athlete, and I've had non-athletes that I mentor who've started, you know, created startups here at the University of Texas, it's all fair game. If, yeah. if, if, if a non-athlete wants to have coffee with a potential investor and that investor buys the, uh, the non-athlete a cup of coffee, there's no file. Yeah. Um, if that happens and it's a student athlete at the table, now we're, we're running afoul of, uh, you know, impermissible benefits and extra benefits. So um, I think it's a move in the right direction. Nick. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to see how, how that changes. And um, to be to be curious of your time, I, I guess if there's a final parting words or some some way that, you know, to pass along something that kind of summarizes our conversation. But, you know, if, if you were to give advice to someone that's like finishing college, going into sports, something that like some tip of motivation that maybe yeah. you was at your keynotes with or something like that to kind of like yeah. wrap up, get people fired up. No, first I just want to commend you, Nick. Um, I love the work you're doing, you know, with, with sports biz pod and um, you're creating compelling content. So I, I want to thank you for letting me, let me be on the podcast. Um, here's what I want to say to, to young folks. Number one, forget about your purpose. So I think the, the number one thing that I find from young people who come to me is that they're so distraught because they don't know their purpose at 20 or 21 or 23. And I'll tell them that most of the adults that you see walking around don't know what the hell they're doing. So, you know, take some comfort in not knowing what your purpose is. And the older I get, the less convinced I am that we have this sort of monolithic purpose. Number two, that means approach life like a Chinese buffet. Okay, so for $9.95, you're gonna walk in, take some Muku guy pan, take some General So's chicken. Like you are in the taste testing period of your life. So I tell people at the business school, even though you know you wanna be an investment banker or you wanna be a consultant, work at a nonprofit, work with a startup, right? Work in a school during internships. The only thing that you're gonna do if you go to a place for a short period of time and don't like it, it just reconfirm what you thought you wanted to do. But the upside is you may find an entirely new world that you didn't give yourself the opportunity to really experience because you're so focused on this one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, last point I have, Nick, is just continue to wage war against your status quo. Whatever your status quo is, be honest and take an inventory of what your skills are, what your network looks like, what your habits are. And if those things aren't in alignment or if you're not operating at the level at which you think could take you to the next tier, find some way to learn the skill, to get a mentor, get a sponsor, get a coach. Like don't become so complacent with things as they are. Mm -hmm. It's never been easier in the history of mankind than in 2020 where you have instant access to resources like YouTube that can teach you any skill, language, anything you want. LinkedIn where you can get connected with anyone. Like leverage like, these resources. That's amazing. Well, I, I want to thank you so much um, kind of looking at the, the people tuning in, 
we've, this was the best um, viewership or however you want to phrase it that we've I've had for for LinkedIn live stream and and for all the people that have asked questions or maybe maybe listen to this afterwards, um, drop a comment in there. We'll do our best to you know try to get the answer for you. But um, yeah, for everyone listening or or have um, you know listening in the past now, um, go go connect with Darren on uh, LinkedIn and uh, follow along his content, and, and we'll put the post to uh, the podcast below there. But Darren, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I'm looking forward to making the trip down to uh, Texas and uh, yeah. seeing what you're building, and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Yeah, Nick, when you get down here, breakfast tacos are on me. Uh, <laughs> look, looking forward to hosting you and staying yeah. in the deep end. Absolutely, cool. And uh, hopefully uh, South by Southwest. I think that sounds like a, a great uh, week to, to go uh, check out what you guys are doing. Yes, yes, we're on. In fact, just one quick plug. We're hosting, I'm hosting a panel on toxic masculinity during the South by Sports um, portion of, of South by Southwest. So for those of you who will be coming into Austin for um, South by Southwest, and you know what, Nick, maybe we should do some kind of a meetup you know, for people yeah. in, in your community and my community. So let's talk about that offline. But if, if you're in Austin, we'd love to connect with you. Yeah, send me the link to that. We have a event calendar. We just curate all the best uh, sports events around the world. So we'll, we'll curate that and we'll put that on the calendar. But um, cool. So uh, I'm going to end the stream. Thanks for everyone that tuned in um, and all the people that will listen after this. And uh, Darren, we'll, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Same to deep end, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this episode of the Sports Biz Pod. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't already, connect with us on all social channels at Sports Biz Group. You can also visit our website, www.sportsbizgroup.com, for amazing resources, events, newsletters, and ways to get an edge in the sports industry. We look forward to continue to unveil new amazing episodes with special guests. Please reach out at any time for any recommendations, ideas, or ways to collaborate. Please go give us a five-star review and subscribe. Look forward to seeing you next show. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.